Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, placed in the midst of the what are called Psalms of Ascent, those Psalms which would be sung by the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, Day of Atonement, uh, other of those big feasts, they would sing these and be reminded of the faithfulness of the Lord and the humble trust that they are to have in Him. So if you're able, let's stand and I will read the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your spirit upon us, that we would have understanding of your word, that we would see what it says, that we would know in our hearts and in our minds that you call us to have this contentment in what you provide, that we might find peace, that our minds and hearts might be stilled from worry, Lord, that we would find all that we need in you, our Father. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 131st Psalm. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's inspired word for us today. Please be seated. This, like other Psalms of David, are very personal Psalms that come from experiences that he had with the Lord. And then you'll see at the end, as he does quite often, he calls on Israel to do the same thing that he has come to the conclusion that he needs to do. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Remember, David was the one in whom the Lord worked in such a powerful way, and we'll we'll look at a couple of those instances to see why David was able to write a psalm like this. A psalm that he could say, you know, I know, Lord, you've got things going on in this world that I don't particularly understand, nor do I expect you to reveal them to me in my time frame, but I will simply rest and believe in you And you will open those doors to my understanding, perhaps in the next life, if not in this one. Well, these psalms, as I said, are written as songs of ascent, where they would be going on their way to Jerusalem. They would sing these, uh, going up to the feast. And in this one, we have this wonderful portrait, so to speak, of a child being weaned from its mother. Uh, It's not uncommon for uh, David to write about sheep. It's not uncommon for him to write about children. We see these two themes in particular throughout Scripture. Uh, I I would remind you that God did not create sheep and then go, Hey, this would be a great illustration for the church. You know, I see how all those believers and, and, you know, they're just like, well, they're, they're... They're so stupid and so wimpy and so afraid. And, you know, if left to themselves, they're in big trouble. I think I'll use sheep as an illustration for my church. No, 
I'm convinced that God created sheep in the way that they were so that he could say, see the sheep, see what you're like. See, I don't think he said, oh, there's sheep. That's a good illustration. I said, I'm going to create sheep. I think he said, I'm going to create sheep and use that as my illustration for the church. I think he had that in mind. And we see that uh, children throughout uh, Scripture, uh, in particular, Matthew chapter 18, I think, there you have the disciples. They've been with Jesus for almost three years now. They have seen his power demonstrated. They have sat at his feet. They have heard him speak again and again and again. And what happens? One of them comes along and says, who's going to be the greatest? You know, or, or can I sit at your right hand when we get to heaven? And Jesus says, what? If you want to get there, you have to become like a child, humble like a child. Now, as we look at this psalm, I'm first going to pick out some big themes here, and then we'll go down and, and get into a couple smaller portions. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites, writes about this psalm in particular. He says, it is a short ladder if we count the words, but yet it rises to a great height, reaching from deep humility to fixed confidence. From deep humility to fixed confidence. This psalm is about learning to be satisfied in God alone. Learning to be satisfied in God alone. David covers several issues and, and said, I'm going to hit three big ones here. Pride. He says, my heart's not proud. Now, David had every reason for, to be proud. And I bet in different times in his life, he was proud. Remember, Samuel comes to the house of Jesse and says, I'm here to anoint the next king. And, and Jesse pulls out his oldest son, a big strapping boy. And Samuel says, that's not the one. You got another one? He brings out number two, not quite as big of a strapping boy. That's not the one. They go through all the sons. And they, Samuel says, don't you have any more? He says, well, we've got the littlest one. He's out in the field tending sheep. Go get him. He comes in. He is anointed as the king in, in ahead of all of his brothers. The world would have thought, oh, you would anoint the first one. No, we're going to anoint the last one. Then what happens a little bit later? David comes to the camp with a load of food because his big brothers are all out fighting the Philistines. And he comes and he sees the armies are just opposed against one another. And he says, what's going on? And he said, well, they've got this giant over there and he's challenged us and every day he comes out and taunts the living God and nobody does anything about it and David says I'll do something about it and he goes out and he kills Goliath I mean that's reason for pride that's reason to turn around and look at the rest of the army and, go, and you know buck up a little bit and say you, why didn't you guys do that but David doesn't have any pride right now he said that pride has been removed from me it's one of the most important lessons that we can face in spiritual development is to put away our pride and understand our humility before the Lord. And it talks about that in Psalms, Proverbs, James, Peter, Matthew, on and on and on. And then there's arrogance. My eyes are not haughty. My eyes are not haughty. Arrogance is pride in action. Pride in action. You might be, pri might be prideful, but it is not until you, how do I say, begin to look down on others that arrogance takes over uh, now I, I do this every week I don't want you to think that I'm arrogant but it's like putting the glasses on the end of your nose and going you know looking down everybody I had professors who would do that they would teach like this and then when you ask them a question they would put the glasses down and look at you like this okay? that's arrogance it's arrogance in action pride in action it goes beyond just pride, but it puts it into real life. And David says, I don't 
put my eyes down on people, what do I do? I look to the hills, Psalm 121, from whence does my help come? It comes from the Lord. I look up to the Lord. And then third, the third big chunk here is ambition. He says, I don't concern myself with matters that are too wonderful for me, too great for me. It's not that David didn't want to achieve. It's not that David was some passive creature. I mean, you don't be the warrior of God for God that David was by being passive. But he said that, you know, I understand what the Lord has. And I am patient and I am willing to wait upon the Lord. Now, we'll look at this in, in a few more minutes. But remember, the day that Samuel anointed him as king, it was 17 years before he was crowned as king. Now, think about that. Samuel, the great prophet, comes to your house, picks you above all your older brothers, and says, you are to be king of Israel. And what do you think? Let's go. And he says, no. In the Lord's time, every year goes on and on. For 17 years, David was either hiding in the desert or living off in another city, but he wasn't king yet, even though he knew that the Lord had already anointed him to be king. He said, I am willing to wait upon the Lord's time. Overcoming ambition is knowing the character is more important than career, godliness more important than success, helping others more important than amassing you know, great wealth. It's achieving the purposes of God rather than the purposes of the world. It's not living passively. It is living within the bounds that God sets for you. It is achieving all that he has for you, and it is finding contentment within those things. It is finding contentment within those things. Anselm, many, many years ago, wrote, I do not seek, O Lord, to penetrate your depths, I by no means think my intellect equal to them, but I long to understand in some degree your truth, which my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand that I might believe, but I believe that I might understand. He said, I don't come to understand you so that I then can believe in you. I believe in you so that I may understand you. See, belief comes first. You have to believe, and then you can grasp God. If you don't, or whatever portion he reveals to us, you can't try to get your hands around and then say, okay, I now have a great understanding of God. I'm fully satisfied with what I know about God. Now I can believe. Anselm says, I believe that I may understand. Believing so that you may understand is the opposite of what we might call blind ambition or your aspirations gone crazy. Now let's look at some of the more particular ones. Verse 2. David says, I have learned to trust God completely like a weaned child who has learned to trust his mother. Now weaned, that means that there has been a change in David's life. Not simply an addition of qualities, a new ethic that he follows, nothing like this, but a complete change in his life. The weaning process can be rather difficult. To break a child from its dependence upon its mother's milk may involve tantrums, crying, anger, tears, all of these things. And David says that he has come through the winning process and has learned to trust God on God's terms. 
on God's terms. Before this, it may have been often that David believed and hoped to get something from God, but now he has been weaned from that, and he says, God, whatever you provide for me, whatever you have for me is good enough for me, and I will find contentment in those things. This is a maturing of his faith. Now, David uses the picture of a child that is dependent or is no longer dependent upon its mother for food and nourishment, but becomes independent. Now, in our society, I was, I was just reading the, the statistics, uh, most, child are, most children are uh, weaned after six months. Um, in the Hebrew culture, it was four, five, or six years. Okay? So you can understand that a six-year-old can put up quite a bit of a stink you know, when it comes to this, when they're not getting their own way, when something that they have been dependent upon, have been uh, confident in, and mom says, no, it's time that you take other nourishment. It's time you take other food. And you can imagine the, the, the angst that is in their heart. And it's a process that involves a great deal of difficulty. And you can just imagine David is walking through the palace one day, and he hears a child crying, and he says, what's that noise over there? You know, the king interrupted by a child crying. How could this be? He says, what's going on? And says, well, a mother's weaning his, her child. And David thinks about what that means. And, and maybe he hears the, the child saying to his mother, you don't love me. You hate me. If you loved me, you would take care of me and you would give me this. And the mother says, I love you. That's why I'm weaning you. And David goes to his room and begins to write about his relationship with the Lord. And how the Lord sometimes has to wean us off the things of the world so that we may experience the better things that he has for us. To a six-year-old mind, there might be nothing better than that. But the Lord says, you know what, believer? It's time that you be weaned from the things of the world, weaned from the things that society says are so important so that you may experience what I really have for you, the great things that I really have. The problem with too many within the church one of the problems, we all have a lot, but is we've grown old, but many of us haven't grown up. We've grown old, but many of us haven't grown up. We still need to be weaned. The process is important. God's goal for us is maturity. He doesn't do these things. He doesn't attempt to wean us from these things because he doesn't love us. He weans us because he loves us. Spurgeon, again, is writing about a conversation that he had with one of his mentors. And and in ministry, we're all supposed to have mentors, those guys who have been in ministry longer, more gray hair, that we can rely upon and trust. And in that conversation, Spurgeon writes, We were talking about our attitudes and our feelings, and he made the following confession. He said, When I read that passage in the psalm, my soul is even as a weaned child, He says, I wish it were true of me, but I think I should have to make an alteration of one syllable, and then it would exactly describe me at times. My soul is even as a weaning rather than a weaned child. For, said he, with the infirmities of old age, I fear I get fretful and peevish and anxious. And when the day is over, I do not feel that I have been in so calm, resigned, and trustful a frame of mind as I could desire. This was a man who had been a Christian a long time, been in ministry a long time. Spurgeon writes, I suppose, dear brothers and sisters, that frequently we have to make the same confession. We wish we were like 
a weaned child, but we find ourselves neglecting to walk by faith, getting in the way of walking by the sight of our own eyes. And then we get like the weaning child, which is fretting and worrying and unrestful, who causes trouble to those around and about it, and most of all, trouble to itself. Weaning was one of the first real troubles that we met after we came into this world, and it was, at that time, very terrible to our little hearts. We got over it somehow or other. We do not remember how or what a trial it was to us, but we may take it as a type of all troubles. For if we have faith in him who was our God from our mother's breasts as we got over the weaning and do not even remember it, so we shall get over all the troubles that are to come and scarcely remember them for the joy that will follow. See, the Lord says, I'm going to take you from these things and I'm going to move you to something so much better. So much better that you can't even imagine it. Now, we're attached to certain things in our lives, and we think this is as good as it gets. And the Lord says, I've got to take you from these and move you over to here because they are so much better. So much better. Maybe today during the Super Bowl, you're going to grill steaks. Okay, Your six-month-old doesn't appreciate a steak. Okay? That person who has matured appreciates the meat. The same type of thing in the Christian faith. It is hard for us to appreciate those things down the road until the Lord moves us from here on down there. And then we can appreciate the richness of his mercy, the vastness of his compassion, the depths of his love for us. We have to let go of some of those things before we can find the real contentment in our lives. See, when you, when you leave those things, you're not losing. You're gaining. You're moving out into larger portions of life. God has to take away some things in our lives sometimes. Not because they're bad, but because they keep us from the really good things. Because we find contentment in that. Let's uh, uh, compare it to golf. When you go out and you play golf and you shoot 120, well, that's a bad score, frankly. But when you go out and shoot 100, you think you're doing pretty good because you just shaved off 20 strokes. And then you go down, you shoot a 90, and you think you're really good. And you say, well, I, I think I'm, you know, this is great. I can't ask for more than that. But the Lord perhaps says, I want you to be a better golfer. You could shoot 70. If you leave that bad swing that you have, it's only good enough to get you 90. If you go off and you take some lessons and you really work on your game, you can get down to 80 or 75 or 70, but you've got to leave what you've become comfortable with. Not that that's bad, but these things are better. Okay? Make that into whatever area of life that you can think of. Now, what kind of contentment does David have in mind here? Well, the picture of the child, independent from its mother, is content in a way that it wasn't contented before. And David is talking about a spiritual experience here. Now, there are many kinds of personalities within the church. As soon as you become a Christian, God does not make us into the same type of personality. We all bring different gifts, and and some of us are... Uh, very calm and low-key, and we don't get too uh, excited about anything, and others are uh, frenetic in their activity, and maybe uh, they get really worked up. Maybe you're a worrier, and your husband is not a worrier. That's stereotypically what it is. Or maybe your husband's the worrier, and you're not the worrier. Whatever it is, we have different personalities. But he's not talking about his personality. He's talking about this spiritual 
experience that he has had in the Lord. It is experience of growing in grace. Now, we know what Paul said. Paul said in Philippians, I have learned that in whatever state I am in to be content. I have learned it. It is not something that comes natural to the human. Now, just think about that. How often are you content? How hard do you have to work at being content? Now, I don't think Paul was uh, the type of personality who was, uh, you know, I think he was kind of the A-type, the driver. Uh, If he had an opinion, he probably said it. He was the great persecutor of the church before he became a believer. So you can imagine that Paul is on the move and on the go, and he wants success, and he wants things to happen. And yet, he says, I have found that in whatever circumstance I'm in, that I can be content in the Lord. That I can be content in the Lord. Not only is it a spiritual condition, but it's also an attitude, a condition of the heart, a condition of the mind. And you say, well... Lord, I'd gladly be content. I'd gladly be a contented Christian if, if only you would do a couple things for me, and then I can be contented. Okay, if you uh, make me one of the lottery win- winners, okay, uh, one of those $300 million winners, then I could find contentment. I could be content when everything is taken care of. If only I had a bigger house, if I had a better salary, if the stock market would just do what I wanted to do, then I could be content. You just gave me a different wife or a different husband. Make those kids behave, then I could be content. David's saying, I've learned contentment. I've learned contentment because I've had to. I've learned contentment in circumstances. I have learned contentment because of bad circumstances. The Lord has worked on my heart. The more we fight with our circumstances that God is using to shape us, then the more we demonstrate how unchristlike we are, how unchristlike we are. David says, My heart's not proud. Now, I go back to the illustration of David. 17 years he waited. Saul wanted to kill him. Saul is chasing him and his men through the desert, and David is hiding out in caves. And he comes to this one cave in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It is called the Crags of the Wild Goats. I don't, I don't know they gave caves names, but that's what it's called in Scripture, the crags of the wild goats. And David and his men are inside, and they're hiding in this cave. And along comes Saul, the one who is king now, and the one whom the Lord says, I'm going to get out of there, and the one who is trying to kill David. And Saul comes into the cave, and the King James is rather delicate here, to relieve himself, okay? And there is David right behind him. Now, all David has to do is pull out his sword and kill Saul because nobody else is around. But David does not. He does not usurp the timetable of the Lord. He does not push the Lord in that fashion. He says, Lord, you have promised me to be king. And I will be king in your time frame when you are ready. And I think this was a great test for David to show that he would be content in the Lord's timing. David also says that I'm not concerned with the preoccupations of the mind. I don't involve myself in matters that are too great for me. Now, that's, that's not really a good translation so that we can get our minds around it. It's much, uh, we'll kind of paraphrase that. He says, I don't get preoccupied with things that I can't change. Now, how many of us get preoccupied with things that we can't change? 
Things with other people. Things with other circumstances. Philippians says what? Pray about everything. Worry about everything? No. About nothing. Okay? Take it to the Lord and trust Him. And this is what David is saying. Those things I can't understand. We were talking in, in, in the class this morning about the Trinity. Try to get your mind around the Trinity. Try to get your mind around understanding. We've got one God in three persons. The Spirit, submissive to the Son and the Father. The Son, submissive to the Father. All doing the same will because it is the Father's will, but yet all being one. Try to fit your mind around that. David says, you know what? I'm content knowing that the Lord has those things under control. I don't have to understand everything. So he says, I don't waste my gray matter on trying to understand those things which are simply too great for me i will leave them to the lord and i will trust that either he will reveal themselves those things to me in this world or when i stand before him this is i trust in him some things are beyond my ability to comprehend some things are beyond my ability to understand how about job we read from job as, as a group and we know his story. Things came into his life that he did not understand. He lost his children. He lost his possessions. He lost his slaves. He lost just about everything. His wife told him to do what? Curse God and die. Okay? Now that's a supportive spouse. <laughs> but he didn't. Now he did ask God some very tough questions. And God gave him some tough answers. He said, were you there when I created the the oceans? Were you there when I did these things? Some things, Job, simply are too great for you to understand. But I want you to trust in me. I want you to find contentment in me. See, when we are faced with those kind of issues, it may be a problem, but our response can also be an additional problem. If we begin to worry, if we begin to toss out any thought of I can be content in in the midst of or even because of my circumstances now we've got not the original problem but our problem is also our response to the problem because it shows us to be immature it shows us that way imagine the providence of God that has brought you to this place today imagine how many things had to happen in your life for you to be here today now, if you're thinking, well, you know, mom came in and got me out of bed. That's what happened, and I came here. Or, you, or you, maybe you've been here for years. I've been here for 40 years, so naturally I'm going to be here. Well, what brought you today? Think of all the events, hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of small things that have come together in God's plan to get you here today, that he might work in your heart. See, we can't even imagine that or piece that all together. Or to do something to change it. God is sovereign over all things. And what the psalmist is saying here, David, he says, I will rest content in the knowledge. Content in the knowledge and certainty and with peace of mind that God is in control. That he is sovereign and that I'm kept right there. And I can never leave there because he has a hold of me. So have you found peace and contentment in the Lord? You understand what it means that sometimes God has to wean us off what we love and move us onto things so that we can experience what is so much better for us. Desiring to attain or reach for more is not a problem. The problem is 
desiring to attain and reach for more and hoping to find contentment in those things that is not in God's timing to bring into your life. You'll never be content until you say, Lord, if I have you and in your providence I lose everything else, I can still be content. Let's pray. Lord, it was in our mother's womb that you formed us. We have been in your mind from all time. And your hand was there shaping and molding us, creating us in just the way that you wanted us to be. Today we want to find our contentment in you who knows everything about us. You know the words before they're on our lips. You know the thoughts of our minds. You know the attitudes of our hearts. You know, Lord, when we are worrying and fretting over things that we cannot control. You know, Lord, that when we get worked up over things that we simply should say, I'm going to rest in what you're doing, Lord. I can't change it. I can't understand it. I simply will rest in the fact that you are in control. When I need to know it, I will know it. When I need to take action, that that will be clear to me, that I will seek your face, I will seek your will, but I will find contentment in you. The things of the world, the lottery winners, all these things that the world holds to us, they don't offer the type of contentment that you offer. Lord, you have called us by name. You have created us, called us by name. You have brought us here that we might be challenged today by this little psalm, Lord, that David says, sometimes you take us from those things that we love and place us somewhere else so that we might find a fuller expression of your love, Lord, so that we might find a fuller expression of contentment, that we might find that our hearts really have sought you and have found you and need nothing else. Lord, come upon us that we would have this confidence, have this contentment. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Two hundred ninety-five is our hymn, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. Let's stand as we sing all four verses of 295.
Lord, send us out content in you that our Redeemer lives, that you provide for us all that we need. All that we need to find the peace the world doesn't offer, to find the joy the world doesn't understand. That we may find it in Christ and what he calls us to. We may find it as we proclaim in word and deed the gospel of Jesus Christ and the wonderful saving grace that he brings. Lord, send us out that we may carry out your will, find peace in what you call us to do, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. (laughs) Amen.